So there's this video by Jordan Peterson. Um, it's a clip of Jordan Peterson. It's mm-hmm. titled Islam is Scared. It's got a lot of views on YouTube. I think it'd be interesting to uh, review. Let's have a look. Part of the reason that Islam has its backup with regards to the West to such a degree. I mean, there's many reasons and not all of them are valid, that's for sure. But one of the reasons is that, you know, they, they, being still grounded in a, in, a, in a dream, let's say, they can see that the rootless questioning mind of the West poses a tremendous danger to the integrity of their culture. Now, and it does. I mean, Westerners, us, we undermine ourselves all the time with our searching intellect. And I'm not complaining about that. You know, I mean, it, it, there isn't anything easy that can be done about it. But, but it's still, it's still a, a sort of well, fruitful catastrophe. And, you know, it, it has real effects on people's lives. It's not some abstract all right, so can, can, can I yeah, summarize? Yeah, go for it. Give, give me thoughts. My impression of it. I mean, let's be. Let's try and represent him properly. What he's basically saying is that the West has undermined itself. Yeah. Because uh, and what he's referring to there is the clash between science and religion in the West. Yeah. I.e., scientific discoveries have supplanted Christianity as being the major ideological force which governs people's lives and which is the the main belief system in which people, um, uh, you know, believe yeah. and which they profess. So that is completely true, and you know a lot of a lot of modern commentators, they try to paper over the conflict, um, and they say it's the complexity theory, which I think is you know the thesis, complexity thesis, as we spoke about with Nick Spencer in our interview with him. Yeah, great, great interview, very yeah, interesting. Where the idea is that you the know, origins of atheism. It was is very good, very good interview actually um, from him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the idea there is that um, science and religion have not always been at clash with each other in the West. There's, it's the relationship is complex to a degree that's true, but actually I think the reality is is that science and Christians have not always been at clash, but science and Christianity actually has because yes, you have many scientists who are Christian that made great forward um, motion in, in the progress of science yeah. and contributed greatly. Newton, prominent among them. Well, Newton, but Newton wasn't a class, classical He Christian wasn't. He was a Unitarian. Anyway. He was, in fact, he was... He's he, much closer to he Islam. Was, he, well, he wrote more books on theology, a lot of it disagreeing with the uh, the normal standard narrative of Christianity than he did of science. Right, uh, but there are also other more kind of classical Christians true. who did amazing scientific work in yeah, the... Yeah, very true. Mendelssohn um, was, a, was a priest. Yeah. Um, what was the guy, George Lemaitre, who's the uh, the guy who solved Einstein's general relativity equations and came yep. up with the idea of basically the Big Bang, the primeval atom. Throughout the modern West, last 500 years, there have been really good Christians that have done fantastic work uh, in science. However, a lot of their discoveries have undermined the scripture of Christianity, the Bible. So some of the notable clashes have been the age of the earth, not 6,000 or 10,000 years, but actually much longer than that. Yeah. No evidence or contrary evidence against the idea of a universal flood, Noah's, Noah's Ark. That was a big flood. thing in the That 19th was a huge century. thing. We do not at all appreciate how big a clash that was. Yeah. Um, what else was there? There was, uh, I guess you say evolution and Darwinism. Yeah. In fact, yeah. there's a great quote from John William Draper in his book, uh, 1874, 1876 book, The History of the Conflict Between Science and Religion, where he says that evolution was actually a Muslim idea and that the Christian authorities didn't want to let that in because it went against what the Bible said. The Mohammedan theory of evolution. Yeah, the Mohammedan of... theory of evolution, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we don't believe in, in modern Darwin, Darwinian evolution in its kind of classical sense, but we, we accept the principle of evolution, yeah. biological evolution. Yeah, things so, evolved over billions of years, yeah. Over, over, over a long period of time, yeah. yeah. Um, so you have uh, Age of the Earth, Noah's Flood, yeah. um, uh, evolution, and, and, and there are many other areas of conflict which undermined people's belief or the intellectual's belief 
in the in the scripture of the Bible. And all that happened after obviously the printing press and people can actually read the Bibles and and more people had access to it. And at the same time, due to the fruits of colonialism, the fruitful catastrophe of genocide of native people and ex- exploitation of their wealth, um, that led to <laughs> people having technology, you know, building up their scientific institutions and technology, which led to uh, a lot of progress in science. So in that respect, what he's alluding to is correct. The West did undermine itself and it threw off Christianity. And now we have this kind of... And how did the ordinary person throw off Christianity? Because you look at like 1900, let's say. Yeah. You look at 1900 versus 1950 versus 1980 versus 2000. Just go through the 20th century. Yeah. 1900, everybody was Christian. Yeah. Everybody was Christian in England. Okay. 1950, it started to wane and wax. It was still pretty strong, but it was, it was pretty loose. It was getting a lot looser. 1980, 19, 1990, 2000, yeah. 2010, 2020. I'm just saying numbers now. <laughs> <laughs> Go to 123. <laughs> no, but seriously, like, yeah. what do you think happened? So, I mean, this is going to be opinion. So I'll preface it with that. This is my opinion on, on kind of what makes sense. Why did the... I've always the wanted West... to know your opinion. Go on. <laughs> why did the West lose its faith? Um, I think it was the same thing that happened to the intellectuals. Um, when they, because they were educated and they knew the Bible and they knew science. Yeah. They became more atheistic. And they were literate. On. A lot of people weren't literate in the 18th and 19th century. Exactly. So the, the intellectuals had already kind of, you know, were already feeling that the Christian faith cannot be right. The biblical scripture cannot be correct. Absolutely. And it's, it's not literal formalist. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, which fundamentally undermines your faith in the whole thing. Cause well, if this verse is wrong, maybe all of them are wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so the intellectuals kind of went through that process of, of, questioning and eventually discarding Christianity earlier, but the, um, the, the rest of the West, when they became more literate and when they became more scientifically literate, then they were also able to see the massive clashes between what the Bible says and what scientific discoveries have shown. Yeah. That's, that's my opinion. You add to that, the fact that I think there are uh, two world wars. Yeah. A lot of social upheaval, which, um, you know, in the face of, let's say people don't have that certainty of faith anyway. Yeah. Uh, when you have a lot of social upheaval, it can make people question about the suffering, etc. Maybe that had an effect. Yeah. Maybe more directly, actually, the social institutions were all changed and the, the role of the church was diminished. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think that's probably a lot of the reason why people became more atheistic over time, as yeah. well as maybe more spiritual dimensions as to what was actually driving all this f- yeah. f- anyway. Yeah. But he's right. So the West did undermine itself uh, in, in terms of its Christianity. And, he and it was by the searching intellect? It was by... Uh, yeah, the searching intellect of uh, those specific people in the West yeah. who did that work. That yeah. doesn't mean they're the only people that have ever had a search and intellect. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and it also doesn't mean that their scientific method was, you know, innovated or pioneered by Westerners. Doesn't mean it's not, but doesn't mean it was. Yeah. But the key thing is, is that he is simply extrapolating what happens to Christianity and saying this is going to happen to Islam. And that's why Islam is scared. That's why Islam is scared. Islam, you know, the West is, Islam is scared of the West because what happened to the Christians mm. and to the church is going to happen to Muslims and to Islam. And therefore it reveals essentially his identification of Islam with Christianity as just the brown Christianity. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> right? basically. Yeah. yeah. This is, this is the Asian version of uh, the Asian, <laughs> the Arab version of Christianity. It's just another big religion. Even though Christianity was an Asian phenomenon. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Primarily. People think uh, of it as a Western. It's actually an Asian phenomenon, primarily. For most yeah, yeah. Well, history. Pauline Christianity was actually only spread really in the West, but that's true. Jesus' Judaism was, was was an Asian purely phenomenon. Was a, was an Asian phenomenon. They they all became Muslim. All the, yeah, all exactly. The, all the absolutely followers of Jesus and yeah. you know tribes of Israel. Um, so he's saying that they're the same, which indicates he doesn't really appreciate the differences, the stark differences between 
the Bible and the Quran, the claims that the Bible makes, the claims that the Quran makes, the integrity of text between the Quran and the Bible. And also, I think the beliefs and the degree of beliefs, even in the Muslim world, even today, and we belong to a reformist community. Yeah. So we're not always super complimentary about, you know, Muslims as such in the, in the modern day and the degree yeah. of their faith. Yeah. yeah. But I would say that the degree of faith that Muslims have, I personally think, is, uh, is, is actually far greater than I think a lot of what, um, what Christians have had, even in even 100, 200 years ago. That's yeah. my opinion. Yeah. But you, there's still this kind of real sense of actually, this is something real and we're going to stick to this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what surprises me is this kind of reference to Islam as not as being scared of a searching intellect when if you actually understand the history of science, you know, the history of scientific inquiry didn't begin with Roger Bacon. Roger Bacon was inspired. Which is what people say. Which is what people say. Roger Bacon was inspired by the Arab writers he read. He was an Arabicist. Hmm. You know, Ibn al-Haytham was one person he referenced in his own works of optics. And one quote by Ibn al-Haytham, which is really striking, is this. I'm and a, he was, a, he was a, a, a polymath from, was it 11th century around there? Yeah, he was, a, he was an absolute polymath. And, you know, he probably, he was known in the West as al-Hazan. Yeah. But his, his actual name is Ibn al-Haytham. I'm probably saying it wrong as well, if you want to say. So he, he was the one, and kind of what the Arabs achieved if you read George Saliba, another very prominent, he's the most prominent historical um, a historian when it comes to Arab science, um, is what the Arabs achieved in particular, which was different to the Greeks, is that the Greeks theorized, but the Arabs experimented. Hmm. And that is at the heart of That's the science. That's really true. That is, that is the heart of the scientific method. Because, you know, any, any, any person, it's very good to theorize. It's very important to theorize. It's the first half of the scientific process. Yeah, but the second half is pretty necessary, and that's systematic inquiry. And Ibn al Haytham was one of the people who actually formulated that into a concept. Hmm. Okay, and so this is one example where he does it in his writing. He says, "A person who studies science—I won't read the whole quote, but it's it's all along the same lines." He says, "A person who studies scientific books with a view to knowing the truth ought to turn himself into a hostile critic of everything that he studies. If he takes this course, the truth will be revealed to him, and the flaws in the writings of his predecessors will stand out clearly." He's all about questioning. Yeah. Can you say some of that again? So he says, uh, uh, if, uh, if he takes this course, the end of it says, if he takes this course of, of um, turning himself into a hostile critic of everything that he studies. Right. If he takes this course, the truth will be revealed to him and the flaws in the writings of his predecessors will stand out clearly. And he himself, you know, he formulated two hypotheses and then he did experimentation to test those hypotheses. So this is from the UNESCO uh, website. I mean, he did more than two hypotheses. He did mean in this specific the, in this field of optics in particular, which was a major achievement. Yeah. Um, he substituted beams of light by straight lines and light sources by surfaces, and he this type of abstraction was known to his Greek predecessors. But his major achievement lies in actually investigating the functional relationship between his mathematical abstraction and experimentation. And the author of this article goes on to say, precisely speaking. His methodology was a systematic use of experimentation for individual physical phenomena. So, searching inquiry, searching query, you know, searching minds of the West, destroying Islamic heritage? I don't think so. Yeah. You know, the Arab scientists pioneered experimentation and they pioneered and applied it to two? They applied it to the Greeks, mm. right? They applied it to Greek thinking and there was, as you know better than I do, the Shukuk movement. Yeah, so Tell I mean, Ibn al-Haytham was one of the um, well, like even before Ibn al-Haytham, the Arabs had made huge progress in science, in algebra and chemistry, etc. All of the kind of fields, they, they made huge progress. They did base a lot of their work, a lot of, at least a lot of their theorizing, upon Greek theories. 
But then they, they, they went out and applied it and they made far, far greater progress than the Greeks ever made, who were much more of the philosophical bent, as you pointed out. Ibn al-Haytham came along and one of the major things which he did, uh, apart from what you said, is that he cast doubt upon a lot of the philosophies of the um, Aristotelians and a lot of the inherited kind of theories. And that was called the Shkuk movement, which means the, the, the doubts. And one of the major things that, that you know, the, one of the major manifestations of that was how um, in Ptolemy's cosmology, um, he, or astronomy cosmology, Ptolemy was a, was a Greek um, Aristotelian um, uh, astronomer who, you know, founded a lot of the tables and, you know, generated a lot of the data that a lot of the astronomers used. And, but the thing was, is that his theories um, fundamentally couldn't apply to physical reality. So he said that things moved in kind of weird circles and circles that aren't actually, you know, based around the center of them. It's hard to describe because it's actually kind of mental. <laughs> Ellip right. Elliptical movements, basically. Well, no, no, not elliptical movements. They're, they're the equants and um, oh, that kind yeah. of thing. Which are, which, cycles and equants yeah, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. So he was like, well, I, this, I know we all use this because it's convenient, like philosophically, and it kind of seems to explain Ibn Haytham said this. I know yeah. we all use this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we like This is useful because he's generated good data from this, but we can't really tolerate something being in theory which doesn't make physical sense yeah. and which is not actually observed. So he he began a campaign, you can say ideologically, to uh, to cast doubt upon the Greek philosophy and to try and, you know, fix things, come up with better theories and better data. And he and, and they did that. Now I'm not, the Muslims never completely broke free of the influence of the Greeks, for sure. Of Ptolemy. So they made huge scientific progress. And in fact, Copernicus used all of their data. There's, in fact, in Copernicus's book... Some of their data. Ibn Ashatir's, you know, yeah. Ibn Ashatir's diagram, for example, is directly plagiarized yeah, um, yeah. into I mean, Copernicus's work. But there's a, there's a lot of data which, which, which seems to have been used, which, well, which was used by Copernicus. Yeah. Um, anyone who studied it couldn't doubt that because the, the Muslim astronomers in the centuries before him had produced the best data. And, you know, it's... Uh, oh, the data was used. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the data, data points were used 100%. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. As well as literally diagrams which he had taken out of their books. Yeah, we know they're taken out because they literally labeled them exactly the same points with yeah. the same letters yeah. as the earlier manuscripts of the Muslims. So, so that's kind of to the side. I mean, the point being made here, I guess we're making is that, you know, the idea that the scientific inquiry is, 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 is just about to set to devour a 1400-year-old religion which was itself devouring the previous theories before it with a scientific well, and searching intellect gave birth, and gave, gave birth, birth to the process to, of searching to modern science Absolutely. right yeah it gave birth to to all of these you know these forerunners like Ibn al-Haytham and so many others who Went engaged in the scientific process and inspired directly the westerners exactly but unfortunately and it's and it's actually a, it's, a, it's a historical fact that a lot of the westerners uh, expunged um, uh, mentions of Arabic of Arab sources from their from yeah, their and, work, and, and I've got it right here. In fact, this is in the and now, and now modern day intellectuals think that they invented it. Well, a mission accomplished. That's exactly what they wanted. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, a good example is right here in this particular article by UNESCO a writer. You know, it's it's stated here Ibn al Haytham's few optical writings were translated anonymously already at the end of the twelfth, beginning of the thirteenth century. You know, why would you translate somebody's work anon anonymously? Mm. Is because fundamentally you want that kind of link between that author and what they represent and, that and their work religion. to be disconnected. Mm. Okay. And that happened. In fact, we have a great article by uh, Ahmed Daniel Arif on our website. And maybe we can put it in the wherever on this link. video. Yeah. All right. Where, where he, he references a, a Muslim saying, absolutely, I'm not going to sell my books to these Westerners because they copy them and plagiarize them. And then they publish them extensively without our names on them. 
So that was actually a fear that the early Muslims had, a lot of the scientists. This is not to take away from the extraordinary achievements that Western science, and it's, we can call it Western science because it was, you can call it Arab science, Western science, that Western science achieved, no doubt. But this attitude of uh, the searching, inquiring mind began with us, yeah, right? So and therefore, you know, that's why Islam is scared. No, 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 mate. Yeah. It was Islam that gave birth to that kind of empirical systematization of knowledge, which the West inherited. And that's a good thing. It's a positive thing. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him himself, said, you know, a, 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 the word of wisdom is the lost property of a believer. In mm. other words, if somebody else who isn't part of your community says something which is good, you shouldn't shun it because you didn't say it. Yeah. Take it. It's your lost property. It's a good thing. Yeah. Adopt it. Okay, yeah. and the West did that, and that's to, you know to their credit. And was there plagiarism, etc.? Yes, of course there was, but that happens sometimes in these kind of translational movements. And there wasn't really an awareness. We have to point that out. There wasn't awareness of necessarily the uh, the rigor, the academic rigor that we have today when it comes to citation and things like yeah, that. Yeah, no, but I, I think there was. I think for a period there was a there was actually a concerted yeah I know that a was, movement to do that. Yeah, yeah. The question really is is that. Is Islam scared of the West or is the West scared of Islam? Yeah. Because when I, when I read that, I think Islam is scared of the West, I laughed out loud. Yeah. I was like, no, 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 mate. Yeah. You know, it's not Muslim countries that have waged, you know, war repeatedly in Western countries in the last 20 years. Yeah. Or okay. even historically. And, yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's take a look at another clip. This is more of a kind of, it's a modern clip yeah. of what's happened in foreign policy in the last 20 years. But this was like 2000 and... Oh, no, yeah, no, he'll explain it, won't he? He'll explain it, yeah. So this was like 2014 or something, or maybe even before that. Maybe, maybe like 2007. This is General Wesley Clark. This is one of the top United States generals. Yeah. And he's going to talk about the how, attitude... How scared the, Islam is how, of the West. How scared Islam is of the West, or how scared the West was of Islam, especially, you know, at this point in history, and probably still. Right after 9-11, about 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me in. He said, sir, you got to come in. You got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision. We're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq. Why? 2001. Yeah. He said, I don't know. <laughs> He said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to Al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. I said, is it classified? He said, yes, sir. I said, <laughs> I said, well, don't show it to me. And I saw him a year or so ago, and I said, you remember that? He said, sir, I didn't show you that memo. I didn't show it to you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right, stop it. 
So yeah, actually go, go through the countries again. Well, starting with Iraq, then Syria and Lebanon, then Libya, then Somalia and Sudan, and then back to Iran. So Okay, it's all there. They're all Muslim countries. Yeah. You know, they're all Muslim countries. Yeah. You know, so they basically saw the, an opportunity to respond to 9-11 as an opportunity to wage war on seven Muslim countries. And, and, and plans were already in the works for this um, in, in and the And they figured before, they could accelerate which, it, obviously. Now, yeah. this is not, a, we're, not we're, we're not here to talk politics. Yeah. But it's here to illustrate a point, isn't it? Which is that, is Islam scared of the West or is the West really scared of Islam? Because in the last... 20 years we've had Afghanistan. I mean, we all know what's just happened in Afghanistan. The completely yeah. failed exploit there and the Taliban have taken over again. We've had Iraq. We've had Libya turned into a completely failed state with even open slave markets, mm. right? Because of the complete deposition of its ruler and the creation of, of an ungoverned space, which has led to complete chaos there. And then we've had a covert war, covert war waged against you know Syria um, and the Syrian government, which has plenty of ills of its own, mm. no doubt about that. It's known that the that the West has been, is public knowledge, has been um, sponsoring the resistance against the Syrian government. So there's also Syria, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The Free Syrian Army and things like that. So, you know, the question has to be, you know, is it is it the West that is really, is it the Islam that's scared of the West or the West that's scared of Islam? Because it seems like the West is scared of Islam. Well, I mean, yeah, they're, they're constantly bombing them, you know, <laughs> you know, constantly bombing Muslim countries and and invading them and exploiting them in various ways, and uh, have supported the Saudi government for many, many, many decades and have propped that up. We know it's a matter of public knowledge. For instance, when they had a reformer in uh, in Iran, um, where Mossadegh, who is a democratically elected yeah. kind of, you know, peaceful. Uh, uh, Prime Minister President, yeah. he was overthrown. Again, when he wanted to nationalize the oil, yeah. when he wanted to nationalize the oil, it's been reserves. admitted by intelligence agencies. Yeah, it came out in you know um, declassified. declassified papers. I think two, three years ago from the CIA. Yeah. And and this is actually comes through really interestingly. It's a question as to why are is the West scared of Islam, and it really comes through really nicely in this book called The One Hundred by Michael H. Hart. Hmm. So he's a historian and he looked and he made a book, which is the 100 most influential human beings in history, hmm. a ranking of them. And he put as number one, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Hmm. Okay. And this is part of the reason he did so. He's not a Muslim. In fact, well, you can look up Michael, Michael H. Art and see what kind of things he's into and, and how he's seen um, yourself. But he's definitely not in favor of a kind of supporting the Muslim narrative. He's not a supporter of multiculturalism. He's not a supporter of multiculturalism. <laughs> let's put it like that. Um... <laughs> And, you know, so, so this is what he writes in his book, in the chapter on the Prophet Muhammad, which he gives us as a number one, the most influential human being in human history. And he's, he writes this. He says, um, but da, 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 da. he says, right, he says, for instance, so he says, it is far different with the conquest of the Arabs. He contrasts it with the, Muslim, with the Christian conquest. He says, from Iraq to Morocco, there extends a whole chain of Arab nations united not merely by their faith in Islam, but also by their Arabic language, history, and culture. The centrality of the Quran in the Muslim religion and the fact that it is written in Arabic have probably prevented the Arabic language from breaking up into mutually unintelligible dialects, etc., etc. Differences and divisions between these Arab states exist, of course, and they are considerable, but the partial disunity should not blind us to the important elements of unity that have continued to exist. For instance, very important example he gives. Did I make that clear? That was very <laughs> emphatic, yeah. <laughs> For instance, neither Iran nor Indonesia, both oil-producing states and both Islamic in re religion, joined in the oil embargo of the winter of 1973 to 1974. 
It is no coincidence that all of the Arab states and only the Arab states participated in the embargo. We see then that the Arab conquests of the 7th century have continued to play an important role in human history down to the present day. It is this unparalleled contribution, a combination of secular and religious influence, which I feel entitles Muhammad, peace be on him, to be considered the most single influential figure in human history. He cites the 1973 OPEC crisis, and that's a really important turning point because I think in the modern day context, you know, Mus the West has to a large extent been terrified of Muslims since the Battle of Tours in the uh, in the seventh century, right, when the Muslims came all the way up to um, to France, basically. Mm. Okay, and since then, cultural depictions of Muslims as a barbarian horde. Fine, mm. okay, I get it. In the modern day context, and the Crusades, and the Crusades, yeah, yeah. exactly. But in the modern day context, the West has been particularly terrified of the of the power of the Muslim nations and of Muslim unity mm. because of the fact that Muslims are sitting on some of the largest reserves of energy on earth. Yeah, and, and if united, they would be if an united, unstoppable they would the, political the block. Unstop unstoppable political block. And so they have to, and that's from the OPEC oil crisis, if we can just turn to a video on the OPEC oil crisis, just to inform Ooh. our readers, our readers, our viewers a little better. So this is Crash Course World History. Shout out to Crash Course, they're a really struggling channel and uh, they need some help. Yeah. So please, please <laughs> click on them. Yeah, go on, go for it. Bankruptcy. In addition to these long-term structural changes to the American economy and our demographics, the 1970s saw two oil shocks that sent the economy into a tailspin. In 1973, in response to Western support of Israel, Middle Eastern Arab states suspended oil exports to the U.S., which led to the price of oil quadrupling. This resulted in long lines for gasoline, dramatically higher oil prices, and Americans deciding to purchase smaller, more fuel-efficient cars, which is to say Japanese cars. Also, prices of everything else went up because oil is either used for the production of or transportation of just about everything. I mean, with 70s inflation, this 90-cent portrait of Gerald Ford would have cost at least a buck ten. The paint that covers the green parts of not America? Oil-based. The plastic that comprises the DVDs of Crash Course World History, available now at DFTBA.com? Oil-based. Those are a fantastic bargain, and they would have been way more expensive if the price of oil was higher. And then, in 1979, a second oil shock hit the United States after the Iranian Revolution. Wait, stand up. All right, so that's... We gotta put up a picture of Jimmy Carter. Bam! That's, that's enough, yeah. So, the point he makes is good. I mean, he makes mm. a very solid point, which is basically that that OPEC oil crisis was when I think the West realized... We really need to keep these Muslims okay, from coming together. But thought thought experiment. Let's say the Muslim countries weren't over large energy resources. I mean, everywhere in the world has has some resources. But let's say they weren't there. Do you think they would still they would still feel a threat? I.e., do you think this is just a geopolitical threat? I think and it's they're, they're scared of it, or do you think there's a deeper ideological threat as well? I think there is a deeper ideological threat because in so many ways, um, Islam poses a serious threat to some of the developing attitudes specifically around freedom, hmm. right, that um, are being pushed in the West today. Islam isn't opposed to freedom, but Islam teaches a moral structure, which is that yeah. you'll be held accountable for your actions. And people don't like being held accountable for their actions. Yeah. Okay. And so in that respect, Islam stands more and more, but certainly more than the church, for what is considered to be traditional morality, yeah. a traditional view that we have obligations to our creator, we have obligations to our creation, the I idea mean, of a standard family unit as being a base of society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that a lot of those things are now becoming the inheritance of modern day Western Muslims. Yeah. And they're not really being found much outside of the Muslim kind of context, or at least at least there's certainly a movement to try and drive it out of Western society. Yeah, and a lot of social conservatives are kind of uh, rallying despairing. against Despairing. They're despairing, yeah. I think. Um, 
And so I think the part of the problem is, is that, yes, would they, would they still have a problem with Islam or would the West still be scared of Islam? Yes, because it's probably the biggest competing alternative ideology to Western notions of freedom. Yeah. Um, because Islam doesn't, it, this comes out in your article we published recently, very, well, this is what your whole article is about, isn't it? That yeah. the, the supreme value in the West is freedom. Yeah. And the supreme value in Islam is peace and security. Yeah. And, and so these... Through submission to the laws of God. Through, through, through you know, but even if you take out that part, yeah. all of the Islamic teachings are geared towards establishing peace. Yeah. Okay. That's their purpose. And Islam does teach that in certain situations you have to curtail your freedom so as to establish peace. Mm. So it doesn't regard freedom as the most fundamental maxim by which you need to live your life. In the West, that is the most fundamental maxim, is freedom. Yeah. Okay. And that comes from, where does it come from? I've been talking too long. Well, that comes from uh, Christianity. That comes from St. Paul. St. Paul said that the law is a curse. Jesus said, follow the commandments if you want to get into heaven. Yeah. Very clear on that. Follow the great commandment, follow the other commandments. Commandments are very important. He was a Jew. He believed in Moses. He, he, said who, I, he who abrogates. He who he abrogates the, the, the least of the, of the commandments of the laws of God will be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus was a Jew who said, I've not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. Yeah. Right. Uh, he said that, uh, you know, basically I'm here as the Messiah to uh, reform the Jewish people and you should follow the laws. Whereas Paul, who was a persecutor of Jesus's followers and spent many, I think decades actually hunting them down and killing them. He yeah. talks about this in, in, in his yeah. lesson. He held the coats for people while they took their clothes off so they have more flexibility to stone St. Stephen. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah, he he was he was he was. He literally uh, says, I, "I was holding their coats." Yeah, he was in charge of like making sure they get back. So he was coats. a persecutor of Jesus, his early disciples, and much later claims a conversion story, which has contradictory accounts. But his um, what he went and said actually afterwards is that the law is a curse, and yeah. Jesus died um, so that we could be atoned of the curse of the law. Yeah. I.e., moral law is a curse. It is something bad and ugly from which you should be free. Yeah. And now if you believe in Jesus, if you believe that he died on the cross and went to hell for a few days and then, and then came back and rose to heaven, if you believe in that doctrine, you are now free from any moral obligation. So the idea of freedom... Well, you will not help me. You are... No, you are free from moral yeah, that's obligation true. because I mean, there's no accountability. Yeah, there's no accountability. He's, He's died no for it already. He's, He's already died. suffered for you. Yeah. Yeah. You should be thankful for it, but fundamentally, it's done. You are free. You are free from it. Yeah. Uh, when it comes down to the basic logic, you are free from moral law. Yeah. And, and even it's explicit. There's a reason why the, the, the Christian Monday Christians don't, they drink, they, they drink. eat pork, they don't follow the Sabbath. No circumcision. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They, because they, the, the covenant of Abraham has been freed for them by, the, by, by Jesus' death. And this is something which I think Peterson needs to understand, is that actually the very, um, because he's, he also doesn't like how people are no, trying doesn't. to free themselves from biological sex, yeah. from um, all kinds of moral oblig obligations and responsibilities. His whole his whole thing is take responsibility. Yeah, I know. Right, I know. It's all about fulfill your moral obligations to others, and you will find contentment in that. Yes, absolutely. But actually, it is Christianity and Saint Paul, which is the one that untethered people from moral, moral obligations and from the moral laws. Yeah, and the the Catholic Church. You know, they realized early on that you can't actually have a religion without and a social and, and a social institution like a church without religious um, obligations. Yeah. So they kept it going, and with out accountability, and they supplanted the concept of Jesus dying for your sins to accountability to the church, to the priesthood. Mm. Okay. So people committed sin, they went and they 
confessed their sins. Yeah. Okay. So there was a concept that you would have some degree of accountability. And then, you know, when the Protestant movement came about, they went full on Paulinism. Yeah. Okay. Because they, why did that happen? Well, because why they, did that happen then? Because the, the Bible got printed in English. Yeah. <laughs> and German. Or German, yeah. Right. And there was no longer Latin. The ordinary people read it and said, hold on a second. It's got nothing in here about me confessing to the priest. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I just need to believe in Jesus according to the Paul. Hmm. Okay. So the church has been hiding this from us that I can have a direct relationship with God um, through Jesus, through belief in Jesus' atoning death. Yeah. Okay. And therefore, I don't need to be subscribing to this kind of giving my giving my power away to the church. And that's how Protestant Protestantism was born. Yeah. Okay. So, in a way, this is you're absolutely right. You know, the concept of freedom um, is actually what is corrosive um, to the um, to the moral structure of society. Mm. And increasingly, now that freedom was first freedom from God's laws mm. with Paulinism, and became manifested with freedom from the church with Protestantism. Mm. Then it became uh, freedom from religion of Christianity itself with the early 20th century with the movement away so from So again, it did undermine itself. It did undermine itself. He's that absolutely aspect, right. Yeah. But again, it's not the searching inquiry that undermined it all. Mm. It was the cultural approach to what is the biggest and most important maxim, which is freedom. It was mm. an approach to freedom. Well, no, it was the searching inquiry that had a plot part to play, I should say. But it, will, it was also this point, which is that it helped this notion of being free untether them from Christianity itself. Christianity ate itself. Yeah. Okay. In the West, and, and it then, gave birth to modern atheism. And it gave it says birth. you don't have to be moral, you yeah. know, and you you can have no relationship really to a to a faith which says which you don't have to ha you fundamentally don't have to follow a moral law. You you lose the habit of being moral, you know, of, of following a law, and then you lose any relationship with the actual scripture itself. I think that's basically what happened is that the church became a social institution, and then when the church when the association with this church broke down as the social glue that held society together as the state came in to fill that position. Yeah, that's exactly it. Basically, people became statists, which yeah. is when you had the rise of nationalism. And now people are as fanatical about being British and waving their flag. Or American. Or American and, yeah, yeah. or German. Well, not so much German anymore. But, you know, <laughs> they're not big on the nationalism anymore from a top-down perspective. <laughs> but but in every country, you know, it's all about being that of that nation. Yeah, People were like that for their religion. Yeah. you know, to a large extent. And I think that's because the nation has supplanted the church hmm. um, in that position. And the reason is, is because the notion of freedom ate the church. Yeah. Okay. Which the church itself gave birth to and the, the Christianity itself gave birth to. So then what you had is now going into the 21st century, you now have increasing distance of freedom from biology. Yeah. Okay. So if a, if a man decides to self-identify as a woman and participate in games in the Olympics as a woman, hmm. okay, then that person should be considered to be a woman and should be eligible to compete. Being, it's the most prominent example, I think, where yeah. freedom yeah. and your concept of freedom and your concept of what you think it should be like is now being imposed upon the material structure of the universe. But it's it's so important that it's Jordan Peterson saying this because his whole thing is people feel they're free, but they're not going to be happy that way. They need to have responsibility for, and they should be thinking about what they should be doing yeah. rather than what can I do, right? Mm. Um, but he doesn't recognize that the source of that is Christianity. And he doesn't recognize that um, is the searching intellect of the West undermines Christianity, but Islam is not like Christianity. Okay. And mm. that's maybe the last point that we'll make. Yeah. Islam has a moral law. Yeah. And also we would say that the, firstly, the, the, the integrity of the text of the Quran is completely different to the integrity of the Bible, which it doesn't have any textual integrity. The Quran has textual integrity. And as we have talked about in other videos and in many articles on our website, 
the scripture of the Quran proves itself. Yeah. Right. There are so many verses there which um, have scientific prophecies of the of um, which have which have descriptions which you can see as prophecies of modern scientific discoveries. Yeah. Like- By which I mean, for instance, it has a verse talking about the Big Bang. Yeah. Right. And I won't go through it in detail because we've covered this in other videos. But I'll just say quickly, the Quran says in chapter 21, verse 31, do not let those who disbelieve see that the heavens and the earth were a closed up mass, a ratakan, a ratakan. Yeah. And then we open them out. And the meaning of that is like a homogenous entity that is dark. Okay. Perfect description of the singularity. Very much in there. Yeah. Right. Another chapter talks about God and says- And from water did we create every living thing is how water, it ends. Right. Which is, which is also proved true as well. Uh, that water seems the basis for life when we go to see alien life. You, yeah, you look absolutely. for water. Another verse talks about the expansion of the universe yeah. and the heavens we built with our own powers and indeed we go on expanding it. Yeah, yeah. Right? We will go on expanding the heavens. Yeah, yeah. Right? Something very strange. Why would the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, talk about this? And again, we've covered this in other videos and there's yeah. things in embryology, which we, depending on when we release this, either we're going to have or have had very large resource released yeah, on absolutely. embryology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on geology, there are so many things in the Quran which predicts modern science and therefore this is the beauty of it modern science validates the quran whereas it destroyed christianity it validates the quran yeah because the quran is a text which has been well what's what's the inference you can make from well that? we believe that it was dictated by god i mean right. the bible is written by thousands of different authors and it's certainly all evidence for that hypothesis it's, it's certainly evidence for, evidence hypothesis, for the div- yeah. divine authorship of the quran hypothesis whereas the divine authorship of the bible hypothesis has been destroyed because god's own because investigation into god's works i.e nature yeah. have shown that the bible's descriptions of them geocentricity yeah. age of the earth universal and this is blood, this is odd you know doesn't work absolutely and this is odd because you know we've had now the scientific enlightenment you could say for 400 years the quran has been around for 1400 years if if the bible got collapsed by it why didn't it happen to the quran hmm. the, the quran is still here muslims are still attached to the quran islam isn't suffering a suffering a crisis of faith people islam is the fastest growing religion in the west okay? yeah i mean i guess i guess you could there's the, the the if people are 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 being are of becoming disillusioned with Islam, it's not because of its relationship to science. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it might be because of other things. For example, you know, they live in the West. They don't want to be bound by a lot of the moral regulations of Islam, like don't drink alcohol, don't have girlfriends, etc. Yeah, but it's got nothing to. Nobody says, ah, oh, you know, I I decided to become <laughs> an atheist and leave Islam because I'm just, you know. Um, I feel that it, it doesn't accord with scientific statements or scientific positions today. You know, as you said, you know, evolution was initially thought of as the Mohammedan theory of evolution. Mm. The Quran talks about the Big Bang. It doesn't have the same problems from a scientific perspective. In fact, it's been used as one of the major assets in, in modern absolutely, preaching. Absolutely. A lot of Muslims will say, I believe in the Quran because of the statements of scientific prophecies it has. A lot of converts to Islam will say, I accepted Islam. In fact, I know one. I interviewed him like two weeks ago. Okay, <laughs> He said, I became a Muslim because I was so impressed with the scientific prophecies it makes. Yeah. Okay. The very first word revealed to the Prophet Muhammad was what? Iqra. Read. Mm. Right. The very first words that were revealed was read in the name of thy Lord who created man, created man from a clot of blood. It goes on to say, um, and who taught man by the pen that which he knew not. Mm. Okay. Surah Al-Qalam. The first chapter was called the pen. Mm. Okay. And then, you know, Professor Abdus Salam, that uh, eminent Nobel Prize winning physicist, Ahmadi Muslim, you know, he quoted somebody else as saying, um, that 750 verses of the Quran exhort believers to study nature, uh, to reflect, to make the best use of reason in their search for the ultimate, and to make the acquiring of knowledge and scientific comprehension part of the community's life. Now, you can differ on the number, okay? You can say it's 400, it's 500, it's 800, it's 900. You can open up the Quran in reality in any position. Yeah. 
leaf through it and you'll find the continuous exhortations to study nature, continuous reflections upon the movement of the heavenly bodies, upon plant life, upon animal life, you know, drawing attention to these physical phenomena and asking people to reflect upon the basis of them. Yeah. Is there design? How could, could this have come about? Could this itself? have come about itself, etc.? So, you know, it was that text that actually led to the scientific revolution of the Arabs. And it was the Arab scientific revolution that led to the Renaissance of the West. So for Jordan Peterson to say Islam is scared because of the searching mind, well, quite frankly, Islam gave you the searching mind. So I think that, or you inherited it from the Muslims, rightly so. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, we hope and pray that everybody now inherits it from the Western cradle, which has kind of promoted it and nurtured it for so many hundreds of years so positively. Mm. I think it's good to end on this particular verse of the Quran. It's from chapter 67, verses four to five. It's talking about God. God says, who it is who has created seven heavens in harmony. No incongruity can you see in the creation of the gracious God. Then look again. See you any flaw? I look again and yet again. Thy sight will only return unto thee confused and fatigued. And I know that's a nice way to end it, but I want to add another, a small comment, which is that the intelligent design movement um, is, is growing in the West. And it's, it is, that's it's, true. It's being, see, it's being seen and it's having a lot of success. I mean, Stephen Mayer just released his book this year, Return of the God Hypothesis, fantastic book. Um, You've read it, have you? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, it, the, these things are fundamentally, they are starting to catch on slowly, but actually Jordan Peterson himself was reading it, actually. Yeah, he was reading it and, and tweeting about it. So, you know, these things are, are catching on and these are the things which Islam itself points to. Yeah. There, you know, there's no other text which points to design in nature like the Quran does. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no other text, as you've said, which exhorts people to, uh, to study nature, which we call science in the modern yeah. day parlance, yeah. like the Quran does. So Peterson, unfortunately, here is he's, he, he, he's out of his depth. He's, actually. A, he's out of his depth. And, but, it, but I think it betrays a, a tendency towards a cultural supremacy. Yeah. Towards thinking we are right where, you know, we where this fruitful catastrophe. Yeah. I think there is something for the West to be proud of, which is their searching, inquiring mind and, and, and placing the, the desire to seek the truth mm. at the heart of every uh, fork in the road. Some scientists have done that in the history of science in the West in particular. Fred Hoyle is a good example. Of Fred that. Hoyle is a great example of that. Um, Newton was a very good example of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so there have been these luminaries, as there will be in every culture and society. Yeah. But this kind of appropriation of the searching intellect for the West to the exclusion of others is, for want of a better word, um, short-sighted. Yeah, and Abdus Salam said that the uh, science is the common inheritance of mankind. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a good, good, a good point to end on.